We walk the hallowed halls of every life before ours. Every step we take is on ground selected and informed by the past as it weaves its way to becoming the present. Every footstep ever taken has led you to your next move. Every footstep you take will directly impact those that are taken next by everyone else around you. How fascinating it is to know that we are the history of those that lay ahead of us. How dangerous it is to know that we control our future. Broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, directly from Chicago's underground, I'm Peyton Zignego with Channel Veil, vale, lifting up that which divides the known from the unknown. History is something that we all share. It's a linking force that connects past and present and informs our future. Surprising, considering that history is all about the past, and yet it bleeds so far into the outstretched path laid before us. Without history, we are nothing. We have nothing to tell us what we are meant to do, and what rocks on the river of life are actually rocks, and what are, in fact, crocodiles bent on eating us. That metaphor makes sense, right? I pitched it to my field reporter Nadia before we went on air, and she sighed really loudly. I'm taking your sustained silence as a yes. Thank you for your support. I feel as though radio hosts like myself frequently get the short end of the writing stick, you know? I spend so much time making these connections and weaving strings of letters together, and then they are gone in an instant, dissipating into the thin broadcast air leaving me here to lament their fading glory. But then again, I suppose history is not so much the words that are said, but their impact on the world around them. Nadia seems to be making a bored face at me through the glass. Good news though, Nadia has returned to speaking with me and interacting with the world without the need for passive post-its and marker stains on her desk. We had a great conversation the other day. It was mostly me crying and begging her to talk again, but we came to the agreement that field reporters and their radio host partners were better off speaking to each other. That is, in part, due to the fact that I kept misinterpreting her notes, which seemed to cause more trouble than it was worth. <laughs> Either way, we are talking again, and it is fantastic. She is, of course, back to making faces for the time being, but I think it's because our outing helped develop a fear of microphones. Uh, oh, okay, okay, sorry. That was an incorrect conclusion. She's shaking her head. I, I didn't say it was a bad thing. Sometimes I'm scared of microphones. I'm certainly afraid of boom mics. It's a common fear. Uh, uh, fine, fine, I'll leave it be. We were connecting with our audience. A rule they taught me at the improv workshop I went to this week was that we need to connect with our audience, be it through sharing fears or blood transfusions or even the extreme measure of live dissection of your personal beliefs and opinions set to circus music. It was really insightful. Now, in addition to speaking to me again, Nadia has also helped me with an investigation this week. It was quite a lot of fun getting back into our journalistic habits with her. How I've missed this. Before I share, I'll give a little backstory for context. While I was begging Nadia to talk to me again, we saw a woman move through the frames of each one of our security cameras. 
She seemed as though she was looking for something, so I sent Nadia up to go and speak with her, since I was in a bit of a state. She did so without rolling her eyes more than twice, which is a really good record for her. <laughs> I'm very proud. The woman, as it turns out, recently came into possession of a new house. It had been empty for quite a long while, but now it was hers to fill. As she was going through it, she said she found a strange collection of writings in a hidden bedroom cupboard. They seemed to her to be the ramblings of a tortured soul. She couldn't make much sense of them, and they were of little use to her, so she wanted to bring them our way. So, Nadia and I sat with the contents of a manila folder that had been neatly sealed. And now we get to share the fruits of our investigation with you. How delightful. The pages appeared to be someone's attempt at a book. Some sort of travel guide? According to its content, they were the works of a man named Mr. Raxel. The only information about him that we could garner was that he seemed to have no connections or relationships other than himself, and was interested in documenting his travels to publish. Nadia uncovered that he had written another book at some point, but that ended up being a dead end as he appeared to have done that one under a different name or a pseudonym. This particular planned piece was about a trip to Scandinavia he was taking. I made a note to Nadia that I thought it would be a fun trip for us to take, and she almost slapped me. A fair reaction, but I was still offended. <laughs> I can plan good trips for us, sometimes. I know I'm 1-0, bad trips to good, but I think I can even that out. <laughs> Don't make that face at me, Nadia, please. <sighs> Well, our Mr. Raxel evidently didn't have the best trip either, but that's for later. <laughs> Much like my own investigative trips, his began because he was allegedly reading about Scandinavia and its history and wanted to spend some time there and write about it. According to his records, he successfully made it to Stockholm, where he gets a hold of records for a manor in another city. A manor they called Robuk, the home of a family de la Gardie. Oldest records for this home date it to have been built around 1600. His writings continue as he makes his way to Robic. Apparently, he was invited to stay at the manor itself by those that currently resided, but he declined, choosing instead to stay at an inn in the village. Seemed as though he had a thing for strange independence. Now, this evidently becomes an important choice because he had to walk between the manor and the inn. As he did so, he passed a church and the churchyard where a mausoleum resides. As anyone with investigative blood will tell you, mausoleums are lamp to our gossamer moth eyes. There is nothing more alluring than old and buried secrets. According to the timeline we gathered from his papers, on the first day of his stay, he approached the church and found it open and unlocked, though access to the mausoleum wasn't possible for him, though he dedicated a few of the pages we received to describing the church. It's unfortunate that these writings will never be published, I quite like the way he describes his surroundings. Uh, anyway, <laughs> on his return to the manor, he was able to get his hands on a collection of records about the family the manor had housed for generations. It's here that we get our first mention of the first de Lagardi, referred to as Count Magnus. A funny little tidbit came in the comment that Mr. Raxel found this Count Magnus to be unattractive after viewing his portrait. I know journalism should be unbiased, but I laughed. <laughs> what a strange little thing to include in your book musings. Either way, he continues by noting that he wants to get into the mausoleum, a comment I do have respect for. In our timeline, it's the following day that he speaks again with the landlord of the inn. Mr. Raxel takes a page from the journalism playbook and inquires about the Count Magnus again, trying to gather some insight to share with us. 
I'll make note here for the sake of journalism that Nadia and I did our own attempt at research on the manor Robic and its original holder, Count Magnus. We received very little in the way of useful information, and what we could get seemed to have already been revealed by the papers in front of us. There wasn't a whole lot of available information for us to add to this, so we are taking Mr. Raxel to be a sort of expert, considering the research he claims to have done. We take his words at their face value. We are not strangers to only having one source, but we could at least mark the truth about the existence of the places and people he speaks of, so that's a good start. According to the notes he took during his interaction and interview with the landlord, Count Magnus is reported to have been a harsh man and ruler over his land and those that lived on it. There were reports of beatings and two instances of possible arson. The most interesting note, though, was that the Count Magnus is reported to have gone on something referred to as the quote-unquote Black Pilgrimage. What this was, though, the landlord wouldn't say. That marked the ending of that interaction. In the next pages, his research seems to have led Mr. Raxel to find books belonging to and suspectedly written by this Count Magnus. The one of note was a book relating to alchemy. I must applaud the keepers of this manor for their dedication to preserving their history. I wish that Nadia and I were able to get our hands on some of these materials, but we weren't able to find the records of these works, let alone get physical copies of them. And since Nadia banned trips for now... <laughs> believe us, we tried. Nadia researches with the force of a tank engine, and even she hit a block with this one. Mr. Raxel, though, was able to transcribe some of what he read and saw. This alchemical book featured lots of interesting topics, and again, I mourn the fact that I'm not able to read more than what Mr. Raxel wrote for us. It appears that the topic that caught Mr. Raxel's attention was one regarding the acquisition of a long life. It seems from the papers that Mr. Raxel actually transcribed some of what was written in this hundreds of years old text. He relays that this alchemical journal claims that for one to achieve a long life, they would need to find for themselves a, quote, faithful messenger, and the sight of their enemy's blood. Then they should go to a city called Chorazin and salute a prince, end quote. <laughs> there seems to have been something else written, but it was erased as the paper is thinner and worn. I asked Anadia if she knew anything about alchemy, as I unfortunately do not. She said that she had a friend who studied alchemy in middle school, but that was of little value. So I, of course, did what any good journalist would do and sent a letter to our scientist correspondents. I'm sure they were excited to hear back from me after I haven't sent anything to them in about a week. Well, they were very fast to get back to me, a trait I very much appreciate when it comes to those I ask assistance from. <laughs> it makes assembling broadcasts that much easier, since I don't have to wait long days and nights for a letter to arrive back to me. I can put these cases together with such ease. <laughs> and I sing their praises so they aren't as angry at me for that letter asking about alchemy. Apparently, it's seen as incredibly offensive to ask a collection of women of science what they think of alchemy. <laughs> the scientist with curly script and a tendency to write in gel pen wrote a few choice words at the end of the letter that clues me into the fact that she might be a tad disappointed in me. <sighs> Nadia scoffed when we got the letter back and rolled her eyes, though I think if I had asked her to respond in any other way, that would have offended her as well. Well, that was a dead end entirely, and now I've had to sit and type out my professional apologies so that I don't ruin this workplace relationship. Do you think I should send a cookie basket? Can, can we send those? Surely I didn't spend all our station money yet. I bet we can get them an apology cookie. I'll, I'll have one sent their way. And use one of Nadia's many post-it notes to add to my list of things that I'm not allowed to ask scientists. 
All that work just to lead Nadia and I right back to where we started with that slight lead. <laughs> Before I forget, I think I shall send them their official Channel Veil vale apology basket. I hope we don't have to order any more than one. <laughs> we'll run out of funds very quickly. One moment while I place my order and send a letter of our deepest regrets. I'll be back before you even notice I'm gone and can request another apology out of me. <laughs> Broadcasting from a deeply apologetic underground Chicago, this is Channel Vale on WCRX 88.1 FM. Channel Vale has returned, lighter on funds as ever, and broadcasting our deepest regrets and highest hopes on WCRX 88.1 FM. Well, our cookie basket was sent out and we'll hopefully patch up that relationship. I know I do not want to have to find another selection of scientific researchers to ask all of my questions to. I have many, and it's difficult to find folks who will take our work seriously enough to send a dignified reply. Though I suppose what's done is done. It's all history. I'll guide us back into our present topic then, I suppose. Everything else is out of my hands, and I can only think good thoughts about our basket and its safe arrival into hopefully happy and receptive hands. As for the continued tale of Mr. Raxel's writings, he claims that after finishing up transcribing what he did of Count Magnus's alchemical book, he decided to head back to the inn for the night. According to his account of the night, he found that he zoned out as he walked, and instead of going to the inn as planned, he ended up at the churchyard, a luring mausoleum in view. It's here that he remarks how he wished he could go and view the final resting place of Count Magnus after being in his shoes all day. The inn's landlord was out and about, and he overheard Mr. Raxel speaking to himself about his quest to get into the mausoleum. It was then arranged between the deacon, the landlord, and Mr. Raxel that he would be granted entry the following day. With two human resources at his disposal, Mr. Raxel again utilizes the skills of a good journalist and asks them a few questions, recording their answers and the material for his book. According to the deacon, the city mentioned in the alchemical book, Chorazin, is now nothing but ruins, and was apparently said to have been the birthplace of the Antichrist. He then scurries off. Which is fair, I suppose. His next line of questioning was aimed at the landlord, who seems to know a bit more about the Count and the manor itself. Mr. Raxel asks the landlord about the mentioned Black Pilgrimage. The landlord's reply is mostly transcribed on its own page, dedicated to the tale he told as an answer. According to the landlord, his grandfather knew of two men who went out into the woods behind the manor. Their names were recorded as Hans Thorbjorn and Anders Bjornsson. These men were allegedly sick of the whispers of Count Magnus that kept the townsfolk from that area, since the man had been dead for quite some time. Despite many warnings from other townsfolk, they went anyway. That night, the grandfather and a few of his friends were sitting in the inn when they heard a horrible scream, the sound being twisted out of someone in the night. But that sound was not the only one to ring out in the cold night air. After the night settled slightly, a laugh echoed through the trees. This laugh, it's claimed, sounded so awfully inhuman that they were sure it was neither of the men who had set off into the forest. The final sound to ring out in the moonlight was a great door slamming shut in the distance. It was morning when any investigations were done. The first man they found was Hans. To their surprise, he was alive, at the edge of the woods, back against a tree, and hands pushing out to something that wasn't there any longer. He was escorted to the hospital, but died not long after the incident. Apparently, he never ceased trying to push an unseen force away from him. 
nor did he ever articulate just what he was trying to get away from. The second man was found as well, Anders. He was found dead. However, he had been gruesomely attacked. It is alleged that his face had been removed, taken clean off. He was buried where he was found. We were unable to find any reports to corroborate this story, but it was, according to the landlord, roughly a century before, so it's not unlikely that it was never reported on and is left as something whispered about between curious souls and those tortured by the memory of those dark happenings. Despite that tale, Mr. Raxel had no qualms going to the mausoleum the following day. He notes that the key was hung openly in the church. It's clear with that note that he intended to return for a more private investigation. We would like to note that Channel Vale does not endorse stealing keys and entering locked locations behind the backs of their keepers. Even if those places are mausoleums with interesting contents that you really, really want to see. Either way, on this sponsored entrance, Mr. Raxel describes the interior and its contents. The mausoleum held three sarcophagi, as he puts it. The one that was said to contain Count Magnus was well decorated and inscribed. One of the inscribed drawings seemed to have caught Mr. Raxel's attention, as he spends some time discussing it and describing it to us as readers. The inscription depicts a man running from a figure. The figure seems to be human, but it's monstrous in its details. It was a short figure, clad in a hooded cloak and reaching out with an inhuman appendage. Aside from this drawing, the other feature that caught the attention of Mr. Raxel were three padlocks adorning Count Magnus's resting place. One of them had been undone and rested on the floor, but the other two were still securely in place. That seemed to be all the notes he gathered while on this tour of the mausoleum, and Mr. Raxel was escorted out. Though, yet again, on his return trip from the manor back to the inn that night, he found himself mindlessly guiding back to the church and the mausoleum. As clearly premeditated, he took the key from the church and let himself back into the mausoleum. This is when he finds that two of the three padlocks were undone. It seems as though he investigates the third lock, but finds it unbudging. When he writes again, it is the next day, and, as it would happen, his final day at Roebuck. He spends his time saying his goodbyes, but before he leaves, he decides to make one more visit to Count Magnus, since he had spent so much time learning of the man. For the third time, he enters the mausoleum and stands above the resting place of the Count. He begins to speak to the Count, but as he does so, he reports that he felt something hit his foot. The third padlock. It had slipped off. It's at this point that his handwriting begins to turn more frantic. Panic seems to have set in as he writes, and he swears he saw the lid of the sarcophagus move before he ran out of the mausoleum and left it behind him. The door would not lock. The next notes from Mr. Raxel are from his journey back home. His handwriting is ever more frantic and broken, a turn from the neat script used previously. His notes are broken and scattered now, but Nadia and I did our best to piece it together. A good deal of this section of notes is filled with descriptions of the other passengers traveling on the ship with him. He reports 28 passengers, all with descriptions of them. Of note were two, one man in a long cloak and hat, and a short man, similarly, in a cloak and hood. He notices that when meals are served on the ship, only 26 passengers ever come. Upon getting off the vessel and making landfall, Mr. Raxel is intent on getting out of reach. He takes a car to his next destination, but comes to a crossroad at 9 o'clock in the night. On either end of this crossroad stands one man. He writes that they were both clad in cloaks, one with a hat and one with a hood. He sped away. His final notes were written in the lodgings he got for himself, the same place the woman who brought us these notes found them in. 
His final words were frantic and revealed that he expects the arrival of those that chased him. He locks his door. That is where his notes end. His final writings were a frantic plea for mercy and a cry that there was no hope. Our own research led us to find a report stating that a man came to that house in the night one summer. He was frantic and afraid. The next morning he was found dead. We found a report from the investigation of his death, and although we could find no description of the body, there was a positive ID on Mr. Raxel and a claim that many of those that saw his corpse fainted. Apparently it was a gruesome end. And that is where his tale ends. Mr. Raxel's final wonderings of just what he had done remained unanswered and undiscovered, but not unheard. Nadia and I did our best to see if we could track down any other information about this case, but we ended up on a dry road to nothing but dead ends and repeat information of what we had already pieced together. Unfortunately, seeing as how our one source of information is now nothing more than a record of a horrible fate, we are stuck for now. I think Nadia and I will do a little more digging over the next week and see if we can't find another lead, but for now, I'll have to shelf these notes and their very neat manila folder. The past seems to have run up and consumed the present, making history from someone's future. The circle of time continues onwards, ever spinning and winding itself into infinity. That infinity stretches forever, like the cloak of the night sky or the uncountable astral bodies above. Perhaps I shall spend the rest of my night trying to count the stars. Nadia and I deserve the evening off, anyway. Some bonding time will do us good. And I won't make us take a trip to have it. <laughs> I promise. It's good night from us. Though I do hope you'll return to hear my voice live again next week. Broadcasting, as always, from Chicago's underground, this has been Channel Veil. Vale. Today's newscast was brought to you by WCRX 88.1 FM and Count Magnus by M.R. James. I've been Peyton Zignego, letting the veil between you and the world of the unknown once again slide back into place. For now. Thank you so very much for listening. <laughs>